Hello there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from Brooklyn. It's a snow day. It's funny, I did another interview this morning and it was coming down and the sun is now shining. So yay for not a full on snow day. (laughs) My guest is coming from the sunny side of the globe. And she is a global health leader with a unique spread of experiences spanning the globe. She began her professional exploration by pursuing her master's in public health and wanting to expand her capacity to work with individual clients. She pursued a certification in sex and relationship coaching through the Somatic Institute. In her coaching, she serves as a catalyst to change the narrative on how sex, relationships, and love are viewed, particularly by those of African descent and Christian backgrounds. She dismisses the stigma that sex positivity equates to promiscuity, instead embracing the joy of natural sexual energy and expression. She channels her passion for this into the organization she founded for the love of Fufu, an Accra-based project operating on the premise that most people want to be an active part of their social experience. It brings a new style to how people connect and make lasting memories by curating highly interactive and engaging events around traditionally taboo topics. She also is the lead curator of Global Luminary Consulting, where her objective is to help everyday normal individuals travel the world the way best for them. Erica Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are definitely a stamped and sealed global citizen. I'm so happy to welcome you on and and start the conversation. So let's jump right in. Where are you from? Mm -hmm. Where are you local? And what is your craft? Okay, so I am from Ohio, Northeast Ohio. I am local in Accra, as you mentioned, and my craft is your pleasure. Mm, I like it. <laughs> That's wonderful. How deep. Okay. All right. So tell us more. Tell us more. How do you craft pleasure for people? Absolutely. So oftentimes we are not allowed the permission to ask for what we want. And when it comes to intimacy, sex relationships, we are given a narrative of what relationships are to look like. And it's something that we don't practice, right? You go to school, you learn how to do math, you know how you learn how to read, you learn how to engage at some extent in social settings. But relationships are not something that is taught to us. So I create a relationship lab so that you can learn how to try on what feels right for you and also understand how that may show up and feel for another person out in the mm, real world. A relationship lab. I like that word. Wow. So what inspired you to move into that space? Like you're, this is something that it's like you mentioned, it's a taboo topic. So how did you get inspired to move into the space of creating a relationship lab? So I've really been absorbed with sex relationships and procreation since I was a wee young little girl. And I was a sex peer educator in middle school and high school. And I came from a family where we really talked openly about sex to the point where it reduced the need for exploration. And it really set a tone for my sisters and I to feel more empowered about our sexual decisions. So there was never a rush 
to get into things. And we always knew that we could ask questions and things could be Mm -hmm. expanded on. As I grew, I realized not everyone had that framework and not everyone gave themselves permission to talk about dating, relationships, sex openly and freely. And so I pursued, like you read in my bio, a master's in global health and wanted to really be a part of this global change around maternal and child health and how projects are designed and how to make them more sustainable. But as I got older, I realized that more and more men and women were hiding away from what brings us Mm. true pleasure. And that's because we didn't know how Mm -hmm. to talk about it. And we end up talking about it with our peers or our colleagues or our siblings who also don't know how to talk about it and who are also prescribing to a narrative that's been set out Mm -hmm. in the media or that's been set out from some kind of elusive idea, either pornography or the church or whatever it may be. And people are probably going to be like, did she just call the church elusive? (laughs) 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 But in doing that, I just realized that there was a gap that was missing and that we had to do better. So when I started For the Love of Fufu, here in Ghana, part of the reason I started it was so that we could start having conversations that aren't so common around the dinner table. And our first event was called Indulge in Play. And I experienced a lot of resistance to having this event. No one ever asked me what we were going to talk about. Nobody ever asked me what the experience was going to be. They only saw the name and gave me resistance. There was a lot of shunning. There was a lot of shaming. There was a lot that happened. The event, though, was wildly successful, and it really opened up a new door for the conversation around sex in Ghana to happen. And as I was doing that, I was actually seeing a therapist at the time to just work through some personal things. And if you don't see a therapist, it's something I highly recommend to everyone because we all carry around weight that sometimes we just need a non-biased person to help Mm -hmm. us process. And her recommendation was, hey, you're doing all this really good work. You're on these radio programs. You're on these TV shows. You're getting a lot of airtime and space. Why don't you formalize what you're doing so that you have the credibility behind you as well? And so I decided to pursue a certification in sex and relationship coaching. And I refer to myself as an intimacy coach so that I could actually really have not just the weight, not just the authority, but really have the, I don't even know the word for it, kind of like the audacity (laughs) behind me to talk about these things in this cultural context. Mm, Okay. Okay. Let me, let me take just a little detour on one question. So, or just an understanding. So you mentioned that you had a lot of resistance to putting together this. And so the organization you founded, why, why do you call it the love for the love of Fufu? So For the Love of Fufu is a name that was generated around the community that happens when you are Mm. eating fufu. So basically, if you have all your closest friends, you go to a chop bar, you're all around the the bowl of fufu. Sorry, I'm blanking on things at the moment. No, it's okay. (laughs) The Asanka. (laughs) So listen, listeners, for you, and we've talked about food before, but fufu is, I guess, a regional, I mean, every... I had a conversation with another woman and she's from East Africa and they have the same kind of, you know, cassava based or grain based food that you use with with stews. And so 
and it's become this universal name of, you know, the carbohydrate, which is some kind of grain or, or root vegetable or whatever that's pounded. And that is what fufu is. So in Ghana, fufu is typically made from cassava and plantain and it's pounded. It's, I mean, I'm, I think many of my listeners are familiar with no, but I just wanted to give that context to some of, and you typically have it with a soup or a stew in Ghana, it's groundnut, groundnut or palm nut soup. Sometimes it's, no, 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 banku is okra. So yeah, so that's the food, foodie context for it. So yes, continue. <laughs> yeah, and so just adding on with that, and I think that's a great description for those who aren't aware of what it is. It's a very communal meal. And so it's often served in a large bowl when you're in the village and everyone shares from it together, which is really symbolic that you're able to share a pot of food. Your hand is entering it while someone else's hand is also entering it. But what we find when people get together around fufu experiences is that is an opportunity where you are fully able to be your authentic self. That's where conversations around politics happens. That's where all the mama jokes happen. That's where all the things around work. That's actually where a lot of the group therapy in life happens. And so also that's where the conversation around sex, love, and relationships Mm. stem from. So the idea for the love of Fufu is to embrace this idea of coming together, sharing, leaving, and having the memory and wanting to have the experience again. And so we say for the love of Fufu to bring people together from all walks of life to have a memorable experience that makes them want to come back for more. Okay. I love that. I love the imagery and the the symbolism of this everyday act that becomes anchored in communication and mm-hmm. in, in social life. So when was that moment when you realized that people didn't have the same relationship to the conversation around sex that you did? Like, so were you in college? Were you in high school? When did that happen? Oh, gosh, I think it happened at various points in my life. So it definitely first happened in middle school. So I remember in middle school, there was a friend of mine who had lost her virginity and was very proud to have lost her virginity at such a young and tender age. And I remember feeling such sadness because Mm -hmm. it was clear to me that she didn't understand the gravity of the decision that she had made. Mm -hmm. And it was more around like, oh, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm so grown up now, but not really understanding what all came with it. And then I would say probably again, and I studied abroad in Brazil for a year. So I did a gap year between secondary school and university or high school and university. And when I was there, being away from home, being in a foreign country and being with other peers where there was a lot of just conversation around sexual activity and sexual desire. So not just penetrative sex, but, you know, from that first approach to a first kiss to touching of body sort of thing. And a lot of times I noticed, especially with the women, that they were allowing things to happen Mm -hmm. to them Mm that they weren't necessarily ready for or that they hadn't asked for, but they felt like, well, I flirted or, well, I kind of gave off this vibe. So I had to. And, you know, I was raised with the context that you never have to. It's always consent amongst two people. And if you feel resistance at any point in time, you can say no. Mm -hmm. And so I realized there was another gap between how men my age, adults really, were even perceiving and prescribing to how to initiate romantic relationships with one another. 
I also realized that we didn't understand half of the terminology that was being used, even with the basics of like first base, second base, third base. And so it really started to be like, whoa, wait a minute. That's not what this means. That's not what that means. And then when I went to college, I had a friend who was raised very conservatively. And her mother had always told her, and this is in the United States, that kissing is what led to Mm. pregnancy. And that if you kiss, that meant you lost your virginity and that was not honoring God. And that was not how God created his children. And if you bring that type of dishonor to your body, you would go straight to hell sort of thing. And I remember she's a very beautiful woman sheltered. She had never experienced anything like that. And one of the guys was like, yeah, you know, I want us to have a 69. And she's like, what is that, guys? I don't know. So we had to explain it to her. And she was like, oh, my gosh, I couldn't do that. I don't want to go to hell. Da, 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 da. And we were like, well, you're not. And she's like, no, it's sex. And then we were like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> and so she ended up having penetrative sex with one of these men at our university. And after the experience, she felt so mm. bad and she was crying and playing gospel music and reading all these scriptures and really shaming herself and and tearing herself down. And we didn't know what happened. And so I remember finally getting her to talk about what happened. And she goes, well, he entered me, but you know, I know I didn't have sex because we didn't (gasps) kiss. And I was like, well, what entered you? And she was like, well, his penis entered me, but you know, my mom always said that sex was kissing and we didn't kiss. Like we were very clear not to kiss. And I said, so why are you feeling so bad? And she goes, I don't know. Cause I feel like I, I didn't do what my mom said, but like, I just feel really horrible. So we had to actually explain to her what sex was. Wow. Yeah. You know, that brings me to kind of just thinking in the U.S. in particular, you know, we're having this dialogue around this critical release theory, which is whatever, but you know, when I grew up, we had sex education over the years and it started in fourth grade, actually. So we're nine-year-olds and we're learning basic anatomy and all those things. And, you know, I've fortunate to have gone, had a house when my mother was a nurse. And while we didn't talk, you know, very specifically about those things, what she imparted to me was that, you know, take your time with your sexuality. You don't have to be fast, you know, and I grew up with a lot of fast girls, you know, (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) but yeah, they were, girl talk about it. Yeah, there are quite a few. So, but I felt confident in my knowledge and it's interesting because so many of the people that I started sex ed with in grade school were what we were all together as we went into middle school, high school. So we all had kind of the same context. And so I have to give a shout out to the Denver public schools for, for that, because it was Every year we would have it. And then, you know, you, you just have that basic information. But what mm-hmm. my mother was able to do, like I said, we didn't talk details as you did, but she made us or me in particular cherish my my own sexuality and really made it my choice. So I, I knew that it was my choice. I didn't, you know, guys would always, you know, you go out on dates and or not dates, like dances or whatever. And, you know, I didn't think kissing was sex, but but that. That was me. I was a first base girl. You know, I don't know what they told their friends, but that was that was enough for me. I didn't need to be going on and on and on. And I'd hear my friends tell their stories about it and they never talked about pleasure, you know. Exactly. And so that's why I was like, mm, kissing is fun. So that's good for me. You know, like I, what you all talk about doesn't sound like it's any fun. So I'm not really interested in that until I came to a place where I was like ready 
Right. So, so I, I really appreciate that. And I, I think that I'm so happy for the work you're doing and in the work that I do with young people, I'm looking forward to being able to produce certain kinds of content that help to empower young people to, to make those decisions. So kudos to you. Mm-hmm. You're in Ghana now. You grew up mm-hmm. in the U.S. So why the where? How did you come to be living and working and playing where you live? Yes. So I studied abroad in Ghana as a undergraduate student in 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. And it was the greatest year of my life. I thoroughly enjoyed it, had a great time. And then I continued, graduated from school, ended up in grad school. And while I was in grad school, I was working at the World Bank. And while working at the World Bank, I knew I wanted to get back into the field. I knew that life in the United States wasn't necessarily for me or the purpose that I sought out on this life mission for. And so while there, and I will never forget this, it was in November, I got a call from a mentor who's going in like, hey, there's a new for the next African country to go to. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, about 30 minutes later, another Ghanaian American friend called me and he said, hey, Erica, there's a position in Ghana, you need to apply. And I told him the same thing. And then about 10 minutes later, a friend from Uganda, who also worked at the World Bank, called me and was like, girl, I just found your next job. And for me, everything in life from God tends to come okay. in three. And so after getting the third call, I was like, oh, context for it. So yes, continue. <laughs> I want to go somewhere else. So I applied for the job and ended up getting it. And so I moved here literally just for work for this position with the World Bank Mm -hmm. and did that for a couple of years and then was approached by another organization where I then took up employment. So literally my entire time here has been really due to just unique work opportunities Mm -hmm. that have allowed me to stay in country and to just grow. Okay. Okay. And so you have this other self and I definitely want to get back to your work for the love of Fufu, but I want to, because we're talking about travel and and that you have this other self that is a global luminary. So you mentioned that you spent a year abroad in Brazil. Was that your first international experience? It was. Mm -hmm. It was. Mm -hmm. Okay. How did that, or did that place you in a position to to say, like you said, Ghana, oh, I've been there already. So obviously that was between university and between high school and university. So you went to Brazil and then you're in university and then you also come to Ghana. So then how did that now dovetail into Global Luminary? So tell us a little bit more about Global Luminary Consulting. Yeah. So basically when I lived in Brazil, I realized life was so much larger than the United States. And I saw real poverty for the first time. And that made me more eager to see the world. And so I made a lot of international friends. And so I started to travel to meet up with them after that experience in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And I realized that for some reason, the African-American community, at least my family, felt like foreign travel or international travel was only for white people. It wasn't something we did. It was something we didn't have the money for. It was something we dreamed about, but it wasn't something we actually executed. Mm-hmm. And I remember after living in Brazil, I would find I've, I found a ticket to Mexico for two hundred dollars, and I stayed with a friend for ten days, and I spent maybe another three hundred dollars when I was in Mexico, and I was like, wow, I just spent five hundred dollars on a whole international trip mm-hmm. <laughs> to Mexico. And so then, you know, the study abroad 
in in Ghana happened. But before that even happened, after the study abroad in Ghana happened, actually, I realized that there was something that people of color was missing when it came around to international travel. And that was that it is accessible, Mm -hmm. that it is affordable Mm -hmm. and that we have access to it and we deserve to be on those planes as much as anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so a friend of mine who was a Bible study leader, she had a travel business. And so she invited me to do a trip with her. And I was like, "Ah, I don't think I really want to do it. And then she had another meeting about the trip. And I was like, okay, it's a trip to Italy. Fine, I'll go. And she goes, Erica, why don't you start your own travel business and use this trip to Italy to introduce your business? Mm. And I remember praying on it and saying, you know, well, God, I'm looking for something to have residual income, another stream of income. I love the travel. At this point, I have been helping so many family and friends do the first step of getting a passport and also then getting on a plane and explaining that a travel visa is not a visa credit card. (laughs) (laughs) And so she's like, you know, you're doing the work. Why not get paid for it? And I said, okay, well, let me just try it. Let me just see what happens. And so I started Global Luminary with her support on the back end through a larger company scheme and built it from there. So it took many iterations. And so I found what worked, what didn't work. I realized I don't like going on cruises. So I stopped planning trips for cruises. Mm -hmm. And I also realized that what was most important for me in the glo- in the global luminary travel world was ensuring that those who felt they didn't have access to see the world, one, could see the world, two, it was affordable, and three, it matched what they wanted. Mm. So often we go, we look, oh, I want to go to Paris. Oh, okay. Oh, I found this website. They offer trips to Paris. I'm just going to go on that trip. But you want to go because you want to eat an eclair. You want to, you know, drink champagne in front of that. Gives you none of that. Mm -hmm. They put you on a bus that drives by the Eiffel Tower and they say, you better snap a picture while we're here because we're going to the next stop. And it doesn't really allow you to live your dream. And so Global Luminary is all around designing unique itineraries that fit your dream. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so in terms of your first interaction with a the client, then do you give them a questionnaire? Like, how do you, how do you get them? Because some people don't even know, you know, they're just like, this is what I heard and what have you. So do you, how do you mm-hmm. call out the, the details of being able to curate, you know, something that is meaningful for someone? Yeah. So our very first conversation, instead of me asking them what they want in the trip, I actually ask them to talk to me about mm. themselves. What do they enjoy? What makes them smile? What do they do in their pastime? I always ask them to give me three words that mm-hmm. mm. member would use to describe them. Okay. And so I start with their personality first, because often you can hear what they'll want to do when they travel, when they talk about what gets them really excited Mm -hmm. or what, you know, what they don't really like so much in the world. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking to someone and they're like, oh my gosh, I love concerts this year. I've gone to five concerts. I went to this one. They're a music lover. They just told me the genres of music they like. That lets me know that they don't mind crowds, that they probably enjoy going out to nightclubs. So I'm going to design an itinerary that puts them in a place with music in a place that allows them to interact with people, maybe doing a dance class. Those are the sort of things I'm going to start thinking about automatically 
to place into their itinerary. And so, you know, you pick up from like, and you can hear the inflation in their voice when they're like, oh, I love food. I love watching the food channel. And oh, they were talking about, you know, this or that and da 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 da. And it's like, okay, cooking class. This person Mm -hmm. is going to thrive in a cooking class. Mm -hmm. So you can start to think about what experience will resonate with them just based off of who they tell you they are. Okay. Okay. I like that. That's great. And so do you typically plan trips? Do you guide trips or you can do a trip anywhere and you just kind of set them up and do a lot of the legwork? Like how have you made the connections if necessary around the world to be able to effectively design trips? Yeah. So I do both. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I do is you can come to me and I will offer you two different services. One is just general research on a country that you want to go to that kind of incorporates some of the elements I think may stand out most to you. And then you have it. And once you're ready to travel, it's kind of something you can fall back on to help inform an itinerary that you create. The other Mm -hmm. side of it is that I do all the logistical work for you. I plan out your day-to-day as specific as you would like it to be. And then I also would handle all the logistics. So I do all of your bookings on your behalf. And I stay in contact with the different vendors that have been booked to ensure that they're ready to pick you up from the airport, making sure that your hotel is going to be ready, making sure that the excursion is under every supplier, everyone there. You're taught how to get a SIM card. You're taught how to read. Mm-hmm. 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 It's for you to be able to get on the plane, get off the plane, have someone there to meet you who will see you through and get you back on the plane so you can come home. So that's one element of it. Mm-hmm. And then I also do some guided trips and tours where I like to tell everyone, I'm not a tour guide. I'm also a participant on the trip, but I'm also there. So every other year I do a girlfriend's mm-hmm. getaway and it's typically no more than 10 women mm-hmm. and we all come together to have a really unique experience. Oh, wow. That's lovely. Yay. So Folks, we will have links to Global Luminary in the show notes. You can take a a listen to that or a a look at that. So speaking of trips, I have my Glocal Speak question. And so we want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as Glocal Speak. So you as a traveler, you might have many local experiences. So you can choose which local experience you want to share. But what is is your favorite Glocal Speak? (laughs) Okay. Hmm. This is a good question. Um, (laughs) Maybe in Ghana, the use of the word challenge. Okay. You too, huh? (laughs) So how do you use challenge? How how did you come to appreciate challenge? Yeah. So challenge is like friend or you know, depending on how it's used, it's really like an emphasis of what well, always will mean friend or like, hmm, this is actually a really good question. So it, it, while the meaning may be friend, often when it's being used in speech, it's like an emphasis before what is coming. Like mm-hmm. really listen to what I'm about mm-hmm, to say. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. like, oh, Charlie, it was a hot day. Or like, you know, the storytelling is going to be good. Or there's something really coming after you hear the mm-hmm. word or the phrase. And it's almost a signal to keep you engaged in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a really good story storytelling mm-hmm. word, I think, in Ghana. Mm-hmm. And it's a way to ensure that people know that, like, ah, the punchline is coming. Or, oh, this thing happened. Or 
it's good gossip or whatever it may be, but there's something, there's a hook. It's keeping you hooked in. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> okay. I like that because Chile is becoming so universal, right? So particularly because Ghanaians are putting it on the maps and our music and, and, you know, movies and things like that. So, okay, Chale, let us move on to the next conversation in the podcast. That's going to do it for part one of my conversation with Erica Daniel. I hope you join us next time when we continue our conversation about Erica's work with For the Love of Fufu, as well as her intimacy coaching, which I think we've just tipped the iceberg on that conversation. So you can reach us every Tuesday with new episodes at www.glocalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Again, that's www.glocalcitizenspod.com. Please like, share, subscribe, leave a comment. We love to hear from you. And until next time, bye for now.